instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. <clears throat> and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is um, somewhat arrogant of me to think I could add anything to that. But you've commissioned me to do that, and so I want to share with you how I've been learning from this. You, you can take heart. My wife is teaching Sunday school, and she prayed for me this morning. She prayed, please let him be brief. <laughs> and I know I heard an amen from a number of you. So I, I take that as a compliment. Um, and I will try to be brief. But we've been spending these last few months in the book of Matthew, and we continue this morning with the passage you just heard. And it begins with Jesus reassuring John the Baptist that he is the one who John came to announce. He tells people to go back and report to them what they've seen with their own eyes. People receiving sight, the lame walking, lepers cleansed, deaf hearing, dead being raised, and the good news being proclaimed to the poor. He points to all the places that have been a witness to these miracles and yet remain untouched and unaffected by them. It's kind of convicting to us that, um, you know, I think sometimes in our heads we think, well, if I just saw a miracle, I'd be fine, you know, a real one. I'll talk later about it. I think you may have, and you're just ignoring it. But um, we think that to ourselves, and then we read this passage where he's done these things in front of people, and they reject it anyway. And then the section that we're reading this morning resolves in those last few verses that are, to be honest, that's where you should stop. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whenever I hear that last phrase, my, I don't know how many of you listen to the Messiah as much as I do, but I can't help but think of that part of the Messiah, that verse being put to music. <clears throat> I, I struggle with paradoxes. Now you're all going, of course you struggle with paradoxes. That's what they are, paradoxes. Um, <laughs> but it, they sort of lead you to a place where you hope, can I get some certainty here? Can I get a concrete answer to these things I'm thinking about? Is that possible? I mean, we have them in our own circles. Actually, it was mentioned in our passage this morning when, when Sherry spoke, when Sherry read. Um, and we have the problem of free will and, des- and predestination with the problem of evil and justice and, and juxtaposed against God and who he is, right? I always uh, fall back on that line from the uh, theologian, G.K. Chesterton. He says, we hold furious opposites furiously. And this morning's passage has another sort of perplexing statement. Christ describes a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. Uh, sort of an inherently an oxymoron, I think. If you look up the definition of a burden, it's something that is something heavy. It is something heavy that is carried. Something that is difficult to accept or to deal with. Even the, the, the Greek word that's used is, denotes the troubles of life. There's nothing 
pleasant about that. But Jesus says, my burden is light. Then the yoke, um, saying that the yoke is light. In order to emphasize what the yoke means in the Old Testament, they call, it's the weight of oppression. It's described as part of the consequences of disobedience, which include, in addition to a heavy yoke, madness, blindness, confusion of mind. That's in Deuteronomy. <clears throat> you will serve the enemies of the Lord, Deuteronomy says. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. It is also the symbol of a burden of slavery. First Kings and they describe the freedom from oppression as being the breaking of that yoke. Is not this kind of fasting, in the, in the words of Isaiah, I have chosen to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? So that's just part of what, you know, you, you read that passage, you go, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'll try to unpack that in terms of what I, my thoughts about it, but also what I think scripture teaches us and what I've been experiencing personally. <clears throat> One last paradox I think is really important to think about, and it gives me opportunity to mention Soren Kierkegaard, so it has a double benefit. But he actually said, that Danish philosopher said that he reserved a title for this paradox. He called it the absolute paradox. I know there's a bunch of you in here who already know what it is. I could ask for hands and you could explain it as well. But it's for the dual nature of Jesus, both human and divine. He says that's the ultimate paradox. How do those things fit together? And according to him, we're interested in the boundaries of our thinking faculty and we're committed to, in his words, the ultimate paradox of thought, to want to discover something that thought itself cannot think. So we're left with this and I, and I bring that one up specifically because in, in simpler terms, this is sort of the simplest version of Christianity. It's the acceptance that Jesus is both man and God. A lot of stuff flows from, from believing that and having faith in that. And I'll talk a little bit more about it later. In simpler terms, in the words of another philosopher, actually a singer-songwriter, Iris Dement, she says, everybody is a wondering what and where they all come from. Everybody's a worrying about where they're going to go and when the whole thing's done. But no one knows for certain, and so it's all the same to me. I think I'll just let the mystery be. And, and, and unless we think these are just musings of philosophers and poets and songwriters, you can go back to the Old Testament. These are the thoughts of David as well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We hear the words that echo from the cross on Good Friday. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? I cry out day by night, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. One of the stories that I, I was struck by was the story of this, this idea, this concept of getting you to trust in something other than yourself. If you read the story of Gideon, he, he's there, the Israelites have been oppressed by the Midians, and he wants to get out from under that oppression, obviously, and he wants to take his nation out from under that oppression. So he talks to the Lord. He says, pardon me, Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord, Lord bring us up out of Egypt? 
But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. Gideon's trust in God is tested over and over again. He starts out with an army of about 22,000 men. God narrows that down to 300. Quite a difference. But his whole point, and he has a bunch of things happening between there, I'm not going to go through each of them, but all that's to make sure Gideon acknowledges who gets the credit. And you could go back to other books. Go, Job would be a great one to go back to if you want to talk about somebody who can't put together what's going on in his life, those two things. And in Lamentations, it has these words, and it includes, my sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck, and the Lord has sapped my strength. This is why I weep, and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. All very encouraging words about my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So is it heavy or light? How does this work? After all that had been told about the dangers to come, this is to the disciples, and versus their expectations of somebody coming who's going to crush the Romans, Jesus ends with this, this thought in this passage, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My burden is light. The early church struggled with some of this, this concept and wanted to make sure the yoke didn't get heavier. In Acts, um, it talks about the apostles meeting and, and saying that um, people were putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear, continuing to lay on them the burdens of following the law and expanding on what it meant to be a Christian. One thing I'm fairly certain of this morning, if I uh, ask for a show of hands who folks who think their life has been easy, I probably would have retained most of my audience for the comforting message that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I don't think a lot of us would say my life has been easy. I think a lot of us have great moments of joy and gratitude. I know I do. But there always seems to be something lurking. And then maybe someone close to you or maybe your own anxiety, your own attempts to have a life of meaning and be affirmed and, and getting people to admire you. Or, or maybe you're sort of more like me and just can't get, sometimes I can't get by, by my desire to have these things resolved, to understand them completely, to be certain. Or maybe you are in the presence of suffering and it's inexplicable, and no platitudes can satisfy you. And no passing of time erases the tragedy you've felt or are feeling. And this sense of something's not right, the one burden we all carry around, I believe, is the thought that we have not lived up to our sense of doing right and loving well. There's this sort of primordial sense we have of seeking something to make ourselves feel good or at least dull the pain of who we are when we encounter ourselves. Anne Lamott puts it this way, your problem is how are you going to spend this one and precious life you have been issued? Whether you are going to spend it trying to look good and creating the illusion that you have power over circumstances. I love that phrase, creating the illusion that you have power 
over circumstances or whether you're going to taste it, enjoy it, and find out the truth about who you are. Find out the truth about who you are. That can be unpleasant. And unless we think that this is some creation of, you know, the sin was some creation. Greeks and Romans prior to this were dealing with the whole issue of virtue and not being able to be virtuous. And what do you do with it? There are two major train, trains of thought, um, Epicureanism and, and Stoicism. Epicureanism said, give up your superstitions. Forget about God and, and all this ultimate sort of justice sense and enjoy what's in front of you as if there was no afterlife. That's sort of the Epicurean approach to things. I'm really skirting over a lot of issues and hope that all my teachers from way back when will excuse me. But then there's Stoicism, which um, sort of says something like that, but it says, don't expect so much. Regard the world sort of with indifference. It, it's providentially ordered by God, so just sort of don't get too happy, don't get too sad, just take it as it comes. So what do, what do we do with the, we're left, still left with that promise, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, the one thing I thought about a lot lately was the arc of our Holy Week here at Bridge. The whole movement from, and I'm just going to focus on Mon Monday, Thursday to Easter Sunday, but just, I, I don't know about you, but I thought it was like, it was just a very confrontational kind of time for me. In, in what sense? I read an article um, recently by Russ Duthat. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of him, but he writes for the New York Times. He's, he's a Catholic believer. And he, he talked about the decline of sort of traditional Christianity, and, and especially among the younger generations. He said this, with the rapid decline of institutional Christianity, and it's the, the stats on how many people are attending church these days support this, the younger generation in America now include large numbers of people who have only vague and secondhand ideas about Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. An unfamiliar, unfamiliarity with the gospel. And he, says, he goes on to say this, and without those preconceived notions, you may get more of an acknowledgement of the immediacy and mystery, the lapel-shaking urgency, and the mixture of the mundane and the impossible in the Gospels. The Gospels are at their very least the strangest story ever told. And, and it's this kind of almost naive reading, in, in a sense naive, of the Gospels we lose sometimes. And this is not to discard, we're in a seminary, this is not to discard study, this is not to discard continuing to ask your questions. But it is to say that those can become more important than considering who Jesus is and what it means to cling to him and trust in that alone. There's a sort of an utter simplicity in Christianity that even the church, even the church can't obscure. I talk with a lot of people who complain about the church, and I, I, I've gotten to the point where I just say, forget about the church. What do you think about Jesus? What, what's your response to what he did in the Gospels? Then I think the church is important. I'll get back to that in my own testimony. But I think we, we lose that simplicity. 
That, here's what Jesus said in the text we read. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things. Who did he hide them from? The wise and the learned. Oops. And revealed them to little children. I thought about Good Friday, and, and this, that service will impact me for the rest of my life. I guarantee it. And uh, I wrote something about it, which I'm going to risk reading. It's, it's actually on your outline, but I was going to try to tell the story of Good Friday and how that service went, but I felt like I did that in here, and you'll have to suffer through my poem, but I'm going to read it. The silence was broken by sobbing. Each candle was snuffed and darkness grew. Until the last extinguished, the cantor stood to sing, Were you there? And when they nailed him to the tree, was lingering in the blackness, the crying began. A lone voice leading in lament and asking each of us, how can we not join in this hymn of tears? I have been around church for so long, longer than any of you probably, some 70-some years, and I will admit, I think that's the first time I've ever cried at a Good Friday service. There was something about that absolute silence, that absolute darkness, and suddenly that response, that really literally almost childlike response of crying, I thought, that's the most appropriate thing I've ever seen at a Good Friday service. What was just described to us, and you don't need the gory movies or depictions of the event, just the mental image of what happened at that moment. Uh, again, you know, for an embittered older person who inured to these kind of things, it, made me, it, it brought me to tears. And it made me think about the history of that thing, that event that we can so easily ignore. In some ways, we've lost our sense of wonder and awe. And, and Einstein said, in, in to, he to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. Without that humility, there is no hope. The only sacrifice that's asked of us is a broken and a contrite heart, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Jesus didn't say, come unto me, all you have figured this out, gotten it straight, you're behaving well. He says, come to me if you finally realize you cannot fix what is wrong. The second part of uh, that week was Josh's talk after the Monday, Thursday service. And specifically, I don't want to embarrass Zach, but when he asked Zach, he asked somebody to stand up, and he spoke directly to Zach, one of our youth, who said, and he said this to him, there are three lies. These are the three lies we hear. You are what you have. You are what you do. You are what you people say about you. You are what you have. You are what you do. You are what people say about you. When he did that, I, honestly, I thought all of us should stand up with Zach. All of us should stand up, lest I use an out-of-date cultural reference. I'll do it anyway. In the movie Spartacus, and everybody goes, Spartacus, what is he talking about? 
Kirk Douglas. That's even worse. Nobody, none of you know. None of you know who Kirk Douglas is, but I have that burden. Anyway, he's, he, he ran a revolt of the slaves, and when the Romans finally capture them, they have them all standing in front of them, and they want to find out which one of them is Spartacus. And every one of the people, his, his friends, his, the people he was rebelling with, stand up and say, I am Spartacus. And, and they all get crucified in the movie. Uh, the, there is a history behind the story. I'm using the movie. But I, I felt like that was the moment when Zach stood up. We could have all stood up and said, I am Zach. These are the things that trouble me. I believe I am what I have. I believe I am what I do. Don't take those away from me. I believe that what people say about me is more important than anything. This is the yoke and the burden of our own construction. We carry around these fears, we carry around our griefs, and we build up a fragile life based on all of that. And this is where the message of the gospel comes in, where that Good Friday, those Good Friday tears are tears because the burden has been lifted. The yoke is easy and the burden is light. All right, Nance, I'm trying to be short, but let me do these last few things. Um, I, I've already told you how old I am. I've been married a long time, too. But we still have great fights. So don't get discouraged if you think, my fights, they're lacking the quality they used to have. <laughs> Here's the discouraging news. They get better. Um, and recently, a few weeks ago, I, I had a tailspin. I can't even just, I, I tried to figure out post-mortem what I was so upset about. I remember the incident that caused it, and I'm too embarrassed to say it in front of all of you. But I just went off. I, I, everything I had thought and held and not said out loud for months came out in, in really hurtful ways. So be encouraged. And, and here's what happened. I don't know what switched it off, but I know what finally switched it off completely. First of all, I was ashamed of what I had done to my wife. You can still hurt somebody after 50-some years of being together. I was ashamed of what I had done. But here's the incident that, that switched it more completely off than if I had just kept it between us. We were out in the hall, and, and Todd and Allie, I apologize for embarrassing you, but that's your fault. <laughs> Todd and Allie actually lived with us for a year, and, and it was famous time because when I would say something really dumb to my wife, I don't know how many of you know Allie, but she gave me that look, like, really, Rick? <laughs> that just came out of your mouth? <laughs> and that was a good thing. And that, that's what happened one Sunday morning after church. We went out there, and Nancy chose to share this story of my um, ability to incite a fight for, for no really good reason. And, and I could see those looks on Todd and Allie's faces. And, and they were right. But here's what happens when you say things out loud. It takes, it takes the fangs out of it. It takes the teeth out of it. You, you suddenly realize, not only because you're saying it out loud, but because people react to it, and, and these guys did. They, they looked at me and thought, oh, okay. Well, you know, we didn't expect any, and this sounds wrong, but we didn't expect any more from you. I mean, we know what you're like, and we still love you, and we care about you, and 
That's all that matters. That is a perfect illustration of what God is saying to us through Jesus Christ. What, you think I'm surprised by that behavior? That's not surprising. That's why I died. That's why I can say, come to me. And learn to trust me. I, I imagine the disciples who have been with him and, and then they see him crucified and, and they might reflect back on that easy yoke and light burden and wonder, hmm, how does this fit into that story? But they somehow, through all of that, had learned to trust him. And they came out on the other side. I want to go back, and I am going to close with this so the worship team can come up, but I also want to go back and just talk a little bit about I, I, I put a little bit of a story in there about David, about lamentations. And, and, and so there are things, not just fights with your wife or, or seeking reconciliation with somebody you've wronged, but there are also tragedies in your life you had no control over. They happened. They're part of your life. They're part of who you are. So what do you do with those? How is the burden easy and the yoke is light? And... And I don't have an answer. I'll tell you what I learned from reading David and Lamentations. And eventually, David, even at the end of those Psalms, come back and said, well, you know what? I'm going to go back and worship God. Because he's God and I'm not. And that's where I'm left. I'm left with, what am I going to do with that tragedy? Am I going to continue to think there's something I can do about it? Which is pretty silly, right? Or do I think it came from somebody other than God? Or is this in the plan and I'm going to submit to that and worship anyway? It is sort of what we do on Sunday morning. It, we get together. Some of us don't feel like singing some of these words. But we're here to sing them to each other, to hear them. We're to hear each other's cries out of our own hearts and know that there's rest for the weary, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for this book that shows us who Jesus is. And Father, would we be like children in some ways and keep it simple and understand the truth that is there that sometimes gets so obscured by our own thinking and our own desires and our own and our sin, and, and would you bring us to this point of simplicity in our faith. Father, we thank you that just believing isn't the point. Faith is doing something. Faith is active. Father, make us believe, but also make us people who trust you and act in faith on what you have called us to do in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>